You know, every day, my wife or myself goes out to the mailbox and we get the mail. It's kind of a daily ritual in most people's homes. And uh, certain portions of mail are expected. Now, I expect bills. They are faithful every month to come. And I'm not too shaken or surprised when I get a bill from the water company or from the gas company. It's just an expected thing. Now, this season is Christmas season, and we expect to see more and more in our mailboxes Christmas cards from those we love. But every now and then you'll get an unexpected letter. Somebody just that you haven't heard of for a long time writes out of the blue, and it's a letter of encouragement and your heart is warmed, or it's a letter because somebody is in danger and they're asking for your help. I've had a couple of letters this week sort of out of the blue um, that were unexpected. Um, Letters of great encouragement, not that I don't receive them, I do, but just letters of unusual encouragement. People that have recently moved to the city and have come uh, after a few weeks and just kind of shared with me their life story, and it, it was a pleasure to read. There are other letters that aren't quite that pleasurable to read. Somebody's in grave danger of a divorce or a personal catastrophe is happening. Jude's letter, when it was opened up by whoever the original recipients were, we're not quite sure. No doubt it was very unexpected. They probably opened it up and thought, hot diggity dog, it's from Jude, the brother of Jesus. It's got to be an encouraging letter. But as you know, and we've said week after week, that this letter has a twist to it. He begins by saying, I wanted to write a letter of encouragement, but I felt it necessary to exhort you to contend earnestly for the faith, or to put up a good fight for the faith, once for all, delivered to the saints. False teachers, false doctrine, had come into the ranks of the church. And these men and these women who came in, these false teachers, these Gnostics, these heretics, instead of wanting to build up the body, wanted to divide the body of Christ. They wanted to secretly take believers away, the naive believers, the young in Christ, those moved emotionally up and down, those who had no stability because they didn't know the truth of the Scriptures. You've got to understand that division is serious stuff. When somebody comes in to divide the flock, to steal people away or to cause division by false doctrine... God takes it seriously. Unity in the body of Christ is placed in high priority. That we all have the unity of the Spirit in the bond of love, Paul said. That that does not mean uniformity. That does not mean we all believe exactly the same thing on every issue. But it means that we are deferring to one another and esteeming others for Christ's sake so that when the world looks at the church, they don't see a playpen full of babies throwing bottles back and forth at each other. But they see a sheep pen of growing sheep, healthy, becoming strong, representing the shepherd. But God takes division seriously. In fact, in the book of Titus, Paul said... A person who causes division after the first and second admonition reject. That is, a person who's causing division by false doctrine. 
You tell that person once, don't do it. You tell that person twice, after twice, they're out. You reject him, and he is expelled from the ranks of fellowship. You reject him. And the reason, Paul said, is because knowing that such a man is warped and sinning, being self-condemned. And so throughout this letter, Jude has been identifying false teachers, and he describes them and their character. Folks, I know that this letter has been tough. Uh, Almost every verse weighs on us as we've expounded it week by week. But identifying the disease is partway to the cure. The only way to effect a cure is to identify the disease. Wouldn't you rather have your physician tell you the truth about a condition? You know, in the old days of medicine, they they felt that it was almost ethical to not tell the person the truth. If you had cancer, you just kind of hide it from them, tell the loved ones next to them, and hope that they can slowly comfort this person. The best way is to get the truth. One of the most loving things you can do is to tell a person the truth about his or her condition so the person can face it squarely and then effect a cure. You might say, well... Jude is so negative, and I'd agree with you. A lot of the verses that we've read so far, instead of being encouraging, are very weighty and negative. But let me read to you an excerpt from the Foundations of Christian Faith, a book on systematic theology by James Montgomery Boyce. He said, If Madison Avenue executives were trying to attract people to the Christian life, they would stress its positive and fulfilling aspects. Unfortunately, we who live in the West are so conditioned to this very thinking and to precisely this type of Christian evangelism or salesmanship that we are almost shocked when we learn that the first great principle of Christianity is negative. You know what the first great principle of Christianity is? You are a sinner and you need a Savior. But the only way to get positive is to see the negative The negative opens the door and makes way for the cure. He goes on to say, It is not, as many would say, come to Christ and all of your troubles will melt away. It is as the Lord himself declared, If anyone comes after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow after me. Folks, when you contend for the faith, when you contend for the faith, It's impossible to always be positive. It's impossible to always be positive. Paul wrote to the Thessalonians, and he said, We are bold in our God to speak to you the gospel of God with much contention. To Timothy, he said, Fight the good fight of faith. There was a pastor years ago of the Moody Memorial Bible Church named Harry Ironside. And... uh, He said that the faith, he was speaking about the book of Jude, especially verse 3, he said the faith means the whole body of revealed truth. And to contend for all of God's truth necessitates some negative thinking. Any error, any truth and error mixed together calls for definite exposure and repudiation. To condone such is to be unfaithful to God and His words and treacherous to imperiled souls for whom Christ died. Excellent. Now with that, Jude continues after speaking about the three examples of individuals who have fallen away from the past, Balaam and Cain and Korah in verse 11. We want to look at verses 12 and 13. There are five descriptions, five descriptions of these prophets in very picturesque language. 
He says, these are spots in your love feasts. While they feast with you without fear, serving only themselves, they are clouds without water, carried about by the winds, late autumn trees without fruit, twice dead, plucked up by the roots, raging waves of the sea, foaming up their own shame, wandering stars for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. Description number one, there are spots in your love feasts. There was sort of a potluck meal that took place in the early church. They called it a love feast. It was a time where the Christians would get together and they would bring meals. Some they would bring salad, some would bring something else. The rich were to bring more, the poor were to bring less. They turned out to be sacred feasts, holy feasts, because incorporated within the potluck was communion. It was to demonstrate God's love. It was to demonstrate the unity of the body, that we love each other, that we're on the same plane, that the food that I have, I share with you. The riches that I have, I share with you. And if you can't afford it, fine, come. You know, I love to have Christian potlucks. The times that we've had um, fellowship over food has been some of the greatest. Because, you know, there's some ladies that just have a specialty with making green enchiladas and chicken enchiladas with green chili on top. And it's like, wow, I'm glad she brought that. That's her best dish. And then along with that are people who will come who can't cook. You know, when I was single, they'd always say, skip up, bring the potato chips, all right? That'd be enough. But I always got to eat some of the great casseroles that were brought. And people got to eat a few of the potato chips that I brought. The Jews, every year in the spring, celebrated Passover, the deliverance of the children of Israel out of Egypt. They did it with a meal. They got together and had a large family gathering and a long, leisurely meal. And they would often invite their poor friends to come over and enjoy it with them. And because Jesus himself initiated communion, or the Lord's Supper, over a meal, the early Christians began celebrating meals and communion together. They'd have a potluck, or as some like to call it, a pot faith, because they don't like to use the word luck. I don't think it matters. But they would have communion afterwards, and they would bring their food. But it didn't always turn out the way it should have. They had problems. The love feasts were sometimes filled with selfishness, because selfish people would come. And so Paul wrote to the Corinthians and he said, For as you eat, each of you goes ahead without waiting for anybody else. One remains hungry, another gets drunk. So they get together to just have a great meal, to get stuffed, to get drunk, and they take cuts in front of people and they wouldn't demonstrate their love one to another. And the love feast turned out to be uh, hate feasts, really. The apostle describes, Jude describes, these false teachers as spots in the love feasts. These heretics, these false teachers would come in among the church. And most of the church didn't know who they were. And they would blemish the holy gathering of fellowship together that was intended to show love. They were like Judas at the Last Supper. Jesus said, the hand of my betrayer is at the table. And all the disciples were shocked. Who is it? 
because they didn't want that beautiful feast of Passover with their Lord Jesus Christ upset in any way. The word spots in this verse is interesting. It could be literally translated, in fact, some of your translations may have it, reefs or hidden rocks. The word speaks of those hidden reefs that are underneath the ocean that you can't see but that mariners, sailors, have their boats run aground into. They're dangerous because they're sharp. Moreover, they're dangerous because they are hidden. And so it could be translated, these guys are like hidden rocks in the sea of your fellowship together, of your love feasts together. Uh, We've all seen specials on television, shipwrecks, where waters, the sailors thought, seemed to be calm, only to notice that lurking underneath, there was some kind of a reef. I've been in Hawaii, and, and as much as I love Hawaii you've got to be careful because of the coral reef. Uh, in fact, uh, when you surf in the waves in Hawaii, it's different than California surfing because the coral reef is uh, all over the place. And when you're surfing, you can look into the water and about two feet, sometimes a foot underneath the water while you're just zooming by, you can see the coral heads underneath your uh, board. And uh, I've gotten my knees and my uh, toes stubbed several times over on the waves over in Hawaii. It's tough. Sailors who would be sailing out through the channels, uh, now they've got probing devices, but in the old days, they had to make sure that their maps were accurate and that people who went before them accurately conveyed what those channels were like because the hidden reefs could make them shipwreck. That's basically the idea here. Spiritual leaders have to be on their guard. Watching for those who might come into the flock bringing in destructive heresies or divisive doctrines. Jesus Christ was. Did you know that? There was a great incident when the disciples were having a discussion with the Pharisees. Now, though Jesus knew everything that was going on, he walks over to them and he turns to the Pharisees and he says, what are you talking to my disciples about? Like a good shepherd protecting them. What is it you're spewing out? In another place, close to that section, Jesus said, You are blind guides. You are blind guides and blind leaders of the blind. And He said, You shut up the kingdom of heaven against men. These guys were hidden reefs, stealing away the liberty that was in Christ. Notice in the same phrase, He says, They feast with you without fear, serving only themselves. They'd come in among the group, they'd come to the love feasts, they'd come to the fellowship times, they'd come to the Bible studies. They would be there with a bold, brash confidence in their doctrine, but they would be there only to serve themselves. Now the word serve in the Greek means to feed or to shepherd. It's the same exact word that Jesus used when he said, Peter, do you love me? Then feed my sheep. These were people who came in who were not interested in the people, they were interested in themselves. They were interested in a good potluck dinner or they were interested in bringing disciples around them so those disciples could perhaps support their ministry and then they wouldn't have to work and uh, they were just serving themselves, actually feeding themselves. There's two kinds of shepherds, folks. Those who feed sheep and those who fleece sheep. I have been in meetings where offerings have been taken, not once, not twice, but sometimes three times where the offering was taken and then they would count it and they'd say, it's not enough, I feel like God would want more. And they use God as a cop-out to get more. I saw one guy 
pass out trash cans. He came through this town. Uh, he's still on Christian television. And uh, a couple in this church was at this so-called revival, crusade. And they were just so fed up with this guy going on and on about money and offerings. They decided to get up and leave. And as they were getting up and leave, uh, leaving, this, for lack of a better term, evangelist, stopped them. He said, now wait a minute, you wouldn't leave a restaurant without paying, would you? Can you imagine that? I'd send the guy a bill. Say, you owe me for the time. Some of the sternest words in the Old Testament were written against the shepherds who fleeced the flock and wanted to feed only themselves. Listen to what God spoke through Ezekiel. Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says, woe to the shepherds of Israel who only take care of themselves. Should not the shepherds take care of the flock? You have not strengthened the weak or healed the sick or bound up the injured. You have not brought back the strays or searched for the lost. You have ruled them harshly and brutally. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd. And when they were scattered, they became food for all of the wild animals. These guys would come to the love feast and instead of wanting to build up the body of Christ, they wanted to fleece the body of Christ. They wanted to feed themselves. You know what the amazing thing is? is that sometimes you will have heavy-handed, abusive shepherds who inflict guilt and extract from people to the hilt. What's funny is that people seem to love it. They love it. They love being motivated by a guilt conscience. And you know what? Guilt is a powerful motivation. And perhaps some people, because of their backgrounds with their parents, they feel like they uh, owe having a good punishment for some of the things they've done, and so, hey, well, let's just, you know, lay it on me. And sometimes the more abusive these so-called shepherds are, the more people love it. And listen to what Paul said. He said to the Corinthians, In fact, you even put up with anyone who enslaves you, or exploits you, or takes advantage of you, or pushes himself forward, or slaps you in the face. He says, you put up with it. I have a book. I wanted to bring the book to you tonight. I've quoted from it before. It's called the Didache, or the Didache, depending on how you want to pronounce the Greek. But it's uh, uh, from a volume called Early Christian Writings, The Apostolic Fathers. The Didache simply means the teachings of the Twelve Apostles. Now, uh, some people regard it as the oldest manuscripts outside of inspired Scripture. It's a manual. Supposedly written by a few of the disciples or all of the disciples at that time after the scripture was written to instruct the early assemblies on how to handle themselves in different meetings. Baptism, uh, people who would come into the flock. And uh, there's a little section called uh, of missioners and charismatists or could also be translated apostles and prophets. Let me just read a little section from you. You. If anyone comes and instructs you on the foregoing lines, make him welcome. But should the instructor himself turn round and introduce teaching of different and subversive nature, pay no attention to him. If he aims at promoting righteousness and the knowledge of God, welcome him as you would welcome the Lord. 
As regards to apostles and prophets, according to the gospel directions, this is how you are to act. Every missioner or apostle who comes to you should be welcomed as the Lord. But he is not to stay with you more than a day or two days if it is really necessary. If he stays for three days, he is not a genuine apostle. And a missioner or apostle at his departure should accept nothing but as much provisions as will last him to the next night's lodging. If he asks for money, he is not genuine. In fact, one of the translations of the Didache say, if he asks for money, he's a false prophet. That is, if he begs for money. Uh, If any prophet speaking in a trance says, Give me money! Or anything else. Now you can picture that, right? The Lord just laid this on my heart. Tonight there's ten people with a thousand dollars. Oh really? Why didn't he speak to those people before he spoke to you? Well, if anyone says, uh, give me money or anything else, do not listen to him. Isn't that great? Now remember that next time you hear that. Go to an assembly says, give me money. Just say, I remember that Didache, the writing of the twelve apostles, said, don't listen to him. That's right. Don't listen to them. Listen to God. If God puts it on your heart, then give cheerfully. God loves a cheerful giver. He doesn't want you to be giving out of guilt motivation. On the other hand, if he bids you to give it to somebody else who is in need, nobody should criticize him. Takes up an offering and says, we want to take up a special offering for this need. Great. If he says, I want to take up a special offering for those who are needy, me. Don't have to listen to it. Everyone who comes, quote, in the name of the Lord is to be made welcome. Though later you must test him and find out about him, you will be able to distinguish the true from the false. If a newcomer is only passing through, give him all the help you can. Though he's not to stay more than a couple of days, three, if unavoidable. But if he wants to settle down among you and is a skilled worker, let him find employment and earn his bread. If he knows no trade, use your discretion and make sure that he does not live in idleness simply on the strength of being a Christian. He says, I'm a Christian. Let me just mooch off you. Say, you're out of here, dude. And so the early apostles, even after the scripture was written, felt that a manual of discipline was needed for the early churches because these people would come in and out. So he calls them spots in your love feasts while they feast with you without fear, serving only themselves. Look at the second description. Same verse. They are clouds without water carried about by the winds. Now, you've got to understand that often in this book, the Scripture, the Word of God is likened unto water. It's likened unto dew, refreshment. In the book of Deuteronomy, God said, Let my teaching fall like rain, and my words descend like dew, like showers on the new grass, like abundant rain on tender plants. In Isaiah we read, As the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return without watering the earth and make it bud and flourish so that it yields seed for the sower and bread to the eater. So is my word, God said. It won't return empty. But clouds without water are a frustration to a farmer. Clouds come by and think, Great, it's going to rain. But they don't. They don't deliver what they promise. They're clouds, they're ominous, they look like something's going to happen, but they don't deliver refreshment, they don't quench thirst. 
So it is with false teachers. Those who promote new and strange doctrines that are not from the Scripture. Oh, they promote so much. They promote liberty, but they bring you into bondage. Clouds without water. The book of Proverbs chapter 25 tells us, Like clouds and wind without rain is a man who boasts of gifts he does not give. That's what these false prophets were. They boasted of things they could not produce. They were carried about by the winds. In other words, they lost control. They were being carried about, I think this means, by the devil himself. They were being used by the enemy. Carried about by the winds. As a Christian... One of our functions is to refresh others, is to give, not just to soak it all in. Now, we need to soak it all in. We need to be refreshed. We need the dew and the water of the Word of God. But part of that then comes the responsibility to refresh others. One of the greatest and most memorized scriptures in the New Testament is found in John chapter 7. When Jesus stands up in the temple courts on the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles and he shouts out, If any man is thirsty, let him come unto me and drink. And out of his heart, as the scripture says, or innermost being, will flow rivers of living water. Now I've noticed that most of us Christians put the emphasis on the first part of that verse. If anyone's thirsty, hey, come to Jesus Christ and let him quench your thirst. I need my thirst quenched. But there's a second part of that. Anyone who comes to Christ and is himself refreshed becomes a vessel or a channel to refresh others. Out of his inmost being will flow rivers of living water. In other words, you will refresh others. Folks, you're to be a faucet. You're to be a faucet. You are to convey the living water of refreshment to others. We read in the New Testament that the Corinthians did this to Titus. Paul wrote and he said, We were especially delighted to see how happy Titus was because his spirit has been refreshed by all of you. Paul wrote and he said, May the Lord show mercy to the household of Onesiphorus because he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. Philemon did. He was a refreshment. For Paul wrote to Philemon and said, Your love has given me great joy and encouragement because you, brother, have refreshed the hearts of the saints. Now look at the next description found in the Scripture. Late autumn trees without fruit, twice dead, plucked up by the roots. Another description of these false teachers. When a farmer goes to the orchard in the fall, what does he expect to see on the tree? Fruit. Good fruit. It'd be very frustrating to go to the orchard and you fertilize the fruit trees, you expect big juicy apples and you find out that there's no fruit because these things have been pulled out by the roots. They're just sitting in a hole in the ground. There's no connectedness. The false teachers that came into the flock were fruitless. They didn't give out anything to anyone else because they were rootless. They weren't connected to Jesus Christ. Now again, I think it's important to draw a contrast to the true believer. A true Christian is somebody who is producing much fruit, who is rooted in Christ. Paul said being rooted and grounded in love, having a close connection to Jesus Christ. If you have one, fruit will be produced. Remember what Jesus said in the Gospel of John. I am the vine and you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. 
And my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit. Now, every now and then, somebody will come up to me and say, exactly what do you mean by fruit? What does that mean? Well, if you looked it up in Unger's Bible Dictionary, he would tell you that it means good works that spring from a gracious frame of heart. Now, let me put that in concrete terms. The Scripture would speak of fruit in at least three or four different ways. Number one, winning others to Christ. Not that all of you are evangelists and you're going to lead someone to Christ every day, but you are going to be sowing seeds that will eventually, hopefully, as they're being watered, produce fruit. One of the interesting things about fruit is that within the fruit itself, it has the seed to reproduce itself. And so it is with those who know the Lord. They have the seed of the gospel and the ability to reproduce themselves by God's graciousness in others. Secondly, fruit is spoken about in Philippians is giving financially. Paul said, not that I seek the gift, but that fruit would abound to your account. Thirdly, fruit is seen as worship and praise. Giving thanks and praise into his name, the scripture says, the fruit of our lips. How do you become fruitful? How do you become a fruitful Christian? Okay? Very simply, abiding. Abiding in Christ. Jesus said, whoever abides in me and I in him will produce much fruit. Which means your responsibility is to cleave tightly to the Lord. The word abide means to maintain a constant, ongoing, living communion with Him. One of ongoing stability in Jesus Christ. Just like a tree would reach down into the soil and take nutrients and the chlorophyll and the leaves would uh, take its energy and transfer it down to the roots and sap would be produced and spread through the rest of the tree. You stay connected to Jesus Christ on an ongoing, permanent basis and the natural result of that relationship is fruit. You know, that's a beautiful thing about the Christian life. We don't have to get up in the morning and think, okay, how do I be fruitful today? You know what? If you just stick close to Jesus, it will happen. It's got to happen. Without strife. You ever see an apple tree or an orange tree strive to produce its fruit? Can you imagine an orange tree going, mm, boom. Oh, that was hard work. Oh, it just hung in there. As that branch hung into the trunk and the trunk hung into the roots, it just was the natural result of the intimate relationship of the branch to the vine, the vine to the roots, and the care of the vine dresser. The natural result of Christians maintaining intimate walks with their Lord is that you will be fruitful. That's a secret, by the way, of a successful Christian life. The word abide means a continual process, a permanence of position. Now that's important. Permanence of position. I meet from time to time believers whose walks I just feel sorry for. And as much as I can, I want to see them plugged into a kinship or a new believers group or something to stabilize them. Because it's like, I'm with the Lord and then I backslide. And then I'm with the Lord and I fall away. And then I'm with the Lord. And they never grow. They're living in consistent, perpetual frustration. What if you bought a tree from the nursery in the spring and the summer and you planted it in your front yard? And you liked it. Your wife came home and she said, I don't like it there. So two days later, you dig it up and you plant it in your backyard. And then your neighbor says, you know, you're blocking my view of the mountains by that tree. I just wish that you'd move it to your side yard. 
So you dig it up two days later, move it to the side yard. This time your dog comes along, and because that's his running area, he starts scratching the bark, and so that you don't kill the tree, you want to... If you move it three or four times, you're going to have to call the plant ambulance. I mean, that thing will go into shock because it never gets rooted, right? It's got to stay in a permanent position, be cared for and watered. It needs to hang in there. So to have a fruitful Christian life, so as to avoid the dangers that are written here, is that consistent walk with the Lord. We have six minutes left, and we're at our... Oh, we can make it. No problem. Look at the fourth description. That's found in verse 13 now. Raging waves of the sea foaming up their own shame. What, what vibrant descriptions of these false prophets that were in the church. Raging waves of the sea foaming up their own shame. Now, I alluded to it at the beginning of this sermon that I do love surfing. You can tell what frame of mind I've been in this cold weather the last couple of weeks, but... When you surf, or for that matter, when you sail, you always look for calm waters. The best time to go out, usually, is early morning when it's glassy. The wind hasn't kicked up yet. It's about 6, 6.30 in the morning. And believe me, surfers are devoted, sometimes more devoted than Christians. They'll get out there and they just worship those things. And we'd always get out early because the glassier, the better. You can see the swells coming in. They're smoother, uh, better, longer rides. Every now and then, in the ocean, you get these storms that come in every year. In the wintertime, we have a lot of storms. or we, I, we had a lot of storms when I lived out there. You wouldn't see many people out surfing, but every now and then you'd see a couple uh, fanatical devotees to the god of surfing out there with their boards in the middle of a storm. Have you ever walked on the beach after an ocean storm? The water is muddy. Debris, trash, wood, stones are kicked up. The storm makes a lot of noise, but it brings destruction. I've seen the destruction. I one time decided, hey, I've joined the big leagues. I'm going to go surfing out in the storm. The waves were huge. They were breaking way outside, way far from the shore. So I paddled out there thought, I'll be one of the big boys. Well, I got humbled real quick. Those storm waves were so powerful, and I went out one time in Huntington Beach, and I thought I was dropping into this wave. Now, from my perspective, it looked like I was falling down a 40-story building. As you're dropping into this thing, and I dropped in a little bit too late, and a phenomenon occurred called going over the falls. That's where, as the this is, I don't know why I'm giving you this sermon on surfing, but <laughs> as the wave breaks, and it starts to pitch, it, it pitches and curls over, and it forms that tube, you know, that hollow shape, and you, you want to get it as the uh, wave starts to rise and you drop into it. If you drop in too late, you're on the very crest of that thing, you get caught by the lip of the wave, and it's this circular washing machine. You get thrown down to the bottom of the ocean, taken back up, thrown down again as the wave breaks, sometimes all the way to the shore. I got caught in one of those things. It was a storm wave. It was a raging wave. There was a lot of foam and I thought I was about to see Jesus. I thought, well, what a better way to die. Lord, here I come. God spared my life. I decided, this is not for me. In one storm, I saw the end of the Huntington Beach Pier, which had a restaurant on it, fall into the ocean. Storms are wonderful to watch. They make a lot of noise, but they bring destruction. 
False teachers come in, make a lot of noise, and make people, ooh, ah, wow. But in their path, they leave destruction. In fact, look over at verse 16. They are grumblers, complainers, walking according to their own lusts. And they mouth great swelling words, just like the swells of the ocean, flattering people to gain advantage. In the book of Isaiah, the prophet said, The wicked are like the tossing sea which cannot rest, whose wave casts up mire and mud. Now, a true teacher of God's word will take the treasures from the deep, just like the sailors and like the divers will take the old treasures buried in the ocean, bring them up to the surface for people to see. A false teacher, a false prophet, though he makes a lot of noise and a big bang, brings up destruction, mud and trash. That's his metaphor that he's using. And finally, he says, wandering stars for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. Heavy duty, huh? The New English Bible says, like stars that have wandered from their course. You know what he's speaking about? Meteorites. Not fixed stars, fixed planets that you see that look like stars, but these shooting, falling stars. Fixed stars are great. They lead you on your course. In the ancient times, people would plot the direction by the stars. They were reliable. Shooting stars are not reliable. If you follow a shooting star, you're going to be in big trouble. If you follow a meteorite, you might end up in the middle of the Arizona desert where that hole is, but you're not going to end up where you want to go. That's his idea here. Now, the Scripture says that Jesus is the bright and shining star. The Scripture says that Christians are like stars that shine forever and ever. But these are fixed in their orbits, brightly, consistently shining. But these false teachers and the Gnostics, they didn't last long, and they caused people to wander from the truth. Now, I want to close with an admonition and an encouragement. Principally, Jude is speaking about leaders, teachers. And on one hand, I want to warn those of you who say, Hey, man, I'll teach the Bible. No big deal. I'll just sit down in a house and I'll open up the Word and it's a good chance for me to give my opinion. James sternly warns, Be not many teachers, knowing that you shall receive the greater damnation. That's King Jimmy. Condemnation. That's New King Jimmy. In other words, God holds you to a higher account if you are giving people eternal direction. It is the sin of all sins to point a person down an eternal path that is not the right one. To stand and say, this is what you need. This is what you need to do to know God, to live in His heaven. If you mislead people for all of eternity, that's what James is talking about. You shall receive greater condemnation. On the other hand, I want to encourage you. Because some of you, I believe, are called to teach to instruct. And the apostle said, by the time that you ought to be instructors, you have need that somebody's teaching you the basic principles of Christianity. Some of you need to get up and move on like some of the groups, uh, people in the cry were sharing with us tonight. And I think that the Lord would have other fellowships like this one started in other cities around this state, in other states surrounding this state. Well, we branch out from our Jerusalem and go into our Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth.
Some of you, God has put His hand upon to teach, maybe even to start a church. And perhaps God wants to give you a little bit more background, a little bit more instruction and training and preparation in a number of different ways, but then to get out, to move on, and to teach. Greater condemnation, yes, but a great privilege. Let's be on the alert. Let's not be so naive. Let's, as this we read tonight tells us, to welcome people who come in the name of the Lord, but then to test them and to be careful. To test them by their doctrine and to test them by the fruit of their own life. Let's pray. Father, we want to thank you for the privilege. Golly, there's so many of them. We think of the privilege of seeing Shelley go out to Haiti. Think of the privilege of seeing the cry raised up and getting their album into bookstores and um, music stores across this nation. We rejoice that even from here, the gospel is being heralded all over the country and all over the world. We rejoice for those who go out, those who go in your name to instruct. Father, we pray that their hearts would be kept, that you'd keep them on your target, that they'd walk wholeheartedly after you, and that the direction that they are pointing other people in would be clear and unobstructed. Lord, we want to be, instead of being dead trees, we want to be fruitful branches. Instead of being clouds without water, we want to bring refreshment to others. Instead of being raging waves of the sea, we seek to reflect a life of peace like a river. Lord, I pray that our lives would be the very antithesis of what we have read tonight. And you'd help us to look out for those who did not walk according to your word, because we love the flock. In Jesus' name.